This is Dan Fagella. You're listening to AI and Industry. And this week, in our third episode in our series on AI adoption, the entirety of the month of August is about AI adoption, we interview Jan Newman, who's a senior director of applied AI research at Comcast. Comcast is a $100 billion company. Just to give you a sense, NVIDIA is one of the most exciting companies in artificial intelligence, and NVIDIA is actually our next interview on the podcast. So be, be in touch with us next Tuesday, because that episode's a killer one as well. NVIDIA is closing the gap on a $10 billion company. So Comcast obviously has been around for a while, lots of acquisitions, huge organization. I think something to the tune of 20 million subscribers to Comcast various telecommunication services. So lots of data, lots of application areas for AI, and lots of potential confusion if you get AI mixed up. A lot of enterprises are tripping over themselves when it comes to scaling AI expertise. How do you hire enough data scientists to fit into a 100,000-person company like Comcast? You know, how do you even physically do that? It's incredibly challenging. Um, Jan speaks with us this week about scaling AI expertise in the enterprise. Uh, we cover three big points, as you know. Uh, for all of these episodes moving forward, we'll be kind of highlighting the three big takeaways before we roll into the episode itself. And then in the outro, we'll be providing you with an additional resource to this episode that might be useful additional reading. So three big takeaways with Jan here. First, he talks about a very strong distinction between IT and between AI. In other words, when is something just software and when is something AI? And how to think through business problems as to, okay, if I want to solve this problem, is this a software problem or an AI problem? Jan is a really, really useful way of picking which of the two it actually is. This is a great kind of lens of thought for business leaders, and I think it'll be useful. So that's right in the beginning of the episode. He then talks about scaling the problem-solving abilities of business experts in the organization, not just data scientists. How do we shake the core kind of data science lingo and uh, ability to see data science opportunities out of just data scientists and spread that to business leadership in all kinds of functional areas within an enterprise. That's our second point. And lastly, Jan talks about some of his ideas about how to determine a first AI initiative. Most companies that are going to be tuned in are a little bit smaller than Comcast, but the ideas about how to pick what is a first AI initiative I think is critical. And hopefully uh, that ends up being tremendously useful for the folks who are tuned in here as well. So without further ado, we're going to hop into this third episode in our series on AI adoption. This is Jan with Comcast here on AI and Industry. So Jan, I wanted to get off the ground by asking our first question in this series about common misconceptions about getting started with AI. When you talk to business leadership who hasn't done this in the past, what do you see as the biggest misconceptions that they have about this technology uh, that might be a barrier to getting started? So one of the things that I often hear is that they consider AI some kind of black box magic rather than how I think about it as an evolution or there's something more to AI than kind of evolution application of machine learning. And then it felt that machine learning is really, in my view, an evolution of programming. And that often, like once you kind of clarify that notion, it helps to kind of level set the conversation and relate it to something that they are more familiar with. What I mean by that, like even just recently, we had some discussions with um, some upper management and there was a lot of discussion of how do you transition from kind of rules written by the subject matter experts 
to machine learning, right? And how big is the gap between those two? And we try to explain from our team perspective that we just consider rules to be simpler and kind of manually derived machine learning programs and mm. how machine learning and then by extension AI, if you apply it to like the really complex problems, um, allows us to solve certain problems easier when, for example, it is easier to like, label the output of something than actually identifying what the rules are that should generate that given output. Okay. I, let me just pause real quick so I can clarify for the, the listeners a little bit. You're saying sometimes if it's easier to label what's coming out than it is to sort of determine all the if-then rules that we would need to build to make it happen, then sometimes machine learning is just practically the better tool for the job. Is that sort of where you were headed here or, or is it right. a good reiteration? Like, so like, if you think of traditional programming where as a programmer, like traditionally, you want to solve a certain problem. There's some kind of specification of the requirements that you want your program to achieve, right? You have certain kind of inputs. You define certain test cases that describe the desired output. And that's traditionally how we have derived programs or like the programming. And then you generate like some code, compile it, and then that program executes and given an input will generate some output that hopefully matches those requirements. So now with machine learning, we change it up in the way that you basically have input-output pairs that leads for supervised learning, which is the majority of the problems that we're looking at. Right? So for a given input, I have a desired output. And now I use machine learning as a tool to kind of search for the best way to transform that input into the desired output. And I measure how well I'm doing that in a more probabilistic manner instead of deterministic manner as before, where I want to get a given specific metric, I now let the algorithm figure out how do I have to choose or modify these rules to get close to desired outcome as possible. Got it. And so it sounds as though you explain things that way, as opposed to letting people consider AI to sort of be this magical conjuring box. Instead, you sort of say this is, you know, maybe the opposite of, of how programming used to be done. Think about it as another tool where we do things this way. So it sounds like maybe this is this analogy is a is a level setter for you in, in getting past that misconception of you know the the magic AI black box. Correct. And it also makes like AI ML more approachable. Because one of the things I learned in the corporate setting, especially in a large companies like Comcast, that if you have a central team that does machine learning, and so like I lead the center of excellence for machine learning um, research at Comcast it just does not scale to all the problems that you have in the enterprise. Yeah. And so the best way that has worked for us is to kind of identify problems, find out some good patterns that would work for this kind of problem area, but then really to take it to the next level, work very closely with the subject matter expert, right? So in Comcast case, that could be the people who built our Wi-Fi gateway. It could be the people who built the Xfinity Home devices or the setup box software, the X1, or like the software that runs on the setup boxes, our recommendation systems, et cetera, the product teams, to work closely with them because they are the ones who understand this part of their world or their device the best. Yep. So now if we want to get the most out of machine learning, it has to be really this symbiotic relationship between both where they 
kind of add maybe new log statements so that we get more insights into what happens in there. We provide them the tools that tells them what examples the machine learning already does well, for which ones it doesn't. And also to see if, like if we use, like kind of, you probably heard, uh, heard that there's a lot of focus on interpretability yep. and understanding the model, right? If what we kind of get out of those tools actually makes sense and matches their understanding of their system, right? Because that way you build trust. They say, oh yeah, this helps me. And it would take me a long time to kind of optimize that you actually now use with machine learning and be like we getting better results than before. So how can we do more, right? Because it makes my job easier and I can do things better and focus on more complex problems than I could do before. And that's kind of like uh, one of the approaches that we have taken to really make it more approachable. Related to something they used to, which is programming, break open the black box so that they can also see that the output makes sense in their world, right? And then basically reduce the gap and give them the tools so that they can do a lot of this stuff themselves and they become empowered to use machine learning to scale it up into the open place. I like that, actually, that kind of framing. I have a feeling that the majority of the folks listening in are likely to be the, the people who you speak with, the functional business heads. But I think getting an idea of how a technical fellow like yourself has to make this accessible, make it approachable, like you said, break down kind of that initial wall. Uh, hopefully, for some of the people listening in trying to scale AI in their own enterprises, some of these tenets, some of these principles might similarly make AI accessible for them. So I'm hoping that we have some transferable lessons here. And I guess maybe that can take us into sort of our next point here around expectations. So when it comes to getting started with AI, I mean, Comcast is, is reasonably far along in some facets of the business, I'm sure, in terms of leveraging AI, uh, and others maybe less so. But um, when you think about what to expect, what business leaders should expect going in, what would you want to get across? So, you, you know, maybe you're tasked with some new big recommendation project or something around payment fraud or whatever the case may be. What do you want to make sure those business people understand as you get into a brand new machine learning project in an enterprise? So I think one of the fundamental things that someone has to understand is that traditionally, and we talked about programming, right? The main focus was on developing algorithms to achieve a certain goal. So now with machine learning AI, it's not just the algorithm, but it's also the data that A is being used to kind of determine the algorithm via machine learning training. But then the data is also part of the algorithm during every execution in a way, right? Because the data determines the eventual outcome. And so that means that to be able to successfully use machine learning AI, that you have to really start on the data side and make sure that you're data pipelines are really treated with the same care and attention that traditionally you or gave to your software development pipeline to algorithmic development. And I think that's something that is often not clear. So I love this. I can't remember exactly who put it together, but I reuse it in many of my talks, which is out of the AI hierarchy of needs. Huh, okay, right. go ahead. Yeah, this is interesting. So it's basically a, a pyramid of how one thing builds upon the other. And like in the first one is that you have to instrument and log all your systems sufficiently so that they output the data that you then can use later on uh, to make decisions with, right? Once you have done that, so which is really at the application level, 
where every developer should output the information that might be useful later. Then afterwards, you have to set up the right data and um, infrastructure to be able to transport the data, store the data, secure the data, right, access to it. Once you have done that, we have to look into ways to ensure the data quality so that you notice if things are changing from the conditions when models were being trained. This could be simple statistics, ranges, aggregations, etc. So you have to have built that. And then for the first time, you can actually, if that all is in place, more or less, you can really build machine learning models. And even then, often for many problems, especially on the business side, it's more kind of forecasting, like they might be of predictive nature. Um, I want to forecast, for example, what is the popular TV program later today, right? And for those, you can probably use relatively simple models. You don't need deep learning for that. And I think many, and at least in our experience, many of the business problems that we have encountered, can, you can solve well with linear models or gradient boosting machines, um, like so uh, optimized decision trees at the end. And only if you really go to the next level um, after that, then you should look at what we consider AI, which are machine learning applied to more perceptual problems, such as like vision, video understanding. So for example, we will, uh, my team builds computer vision algorithms to understand what's happening in front of the security cameras that we um, give to our customers. Yep. Or like the most successful application of machine learning for Comcast has been the Comcast X1 voice remote, allowing you to control your home entertainment with voice, right? And given like how many choices we have nowadays of how, like what to consume, like the TV interface with the traditional remote just doesn't do it anymore, right? And so being able to understand a, like go from speech to text and then extract from text what the customer is looking for and use then further modeling to figure out like which of the available content is the best, most relevant set of content for this customer. Like those are like kind of the advanced yeah. that built upon like everything else that I mentioned before, right? So do you do you often explain this sort of hierarchy of needs? I also, you know, I, I wonder if there's some blog post out there to kind of visualize what you're talking about. If there is, obviously, that'd be neat. If you took this from a blog post, I find it, I can share it. Yeah, I, it's fine. I'll kind of, I'll Google in the background here. Um, but in terms of core expectations, as we're talking about, yeah, there's plenty of graphics on AI hierarchy of needs. So I think anybody who Googles that and clicks on images in Google will be able to get some sense of sort of bottom up what needs to be handled is one of your core expectations when you're building out a project like this, when you're speaking with business people, for them to get a grasp of what this means and implies. Like, hi, we're headed into this, but we're not going to be making sense of moving video right off the bat. We're first going to be doing these things. Then we need to go through these things and they all have their own challenges. Is it sort of expectation setting around how long it will take, around the kind of changes to data infrastructure? What do you want a business leader to get out of looking at this this pyramid here? Well, I think there's two things. One is that there's a lot of value even without doing like fancy stuff, meaning you can get a lot of value for your business without yes. having to have a deep learning expert on your team. 100%, yep. And then secondly, that if you want to do this right at production and truly trust your data and 
really take full advantage of machine learning, you have to basically check the boxes for the basics, for your foundation, because otherwise you won't get the full value out of it, or even it will not, it will work in ways that will befuddle you and could have unintended consequences. So, so when you set that expectation, maybe business leaders are more understanding when you're going back to the data infrastructure and changing things, or when you're asking a ton of questions of the data now versus a year ago when things were originally trained. That doesn't seem like a different thing. It doesn't seem like a weird thing. It's understood as part of how this hierarchy works, part of how this system works. Is that kind of the, again, the level setting for you? Right, exactly. I mean, you can do something quick and dirty like rapidly to kind of prove the value. But then if you want to build a system that provides value to like millions of customers, you have to spend the necessary effort to get the, the basics right and set up those frameworks. Similar how you would have to do the same thing if you serve your customers with an application like in this non-machine learning world. Yeah, that's especially obviously the case when you we, we have something customer facing, right? I mean, if you're building some little in-house enterprise search tool for certain kinds of FAQs, it can be broken like 30% of the time and it still can potentially be valuable for your internal team. But if you're going to launch, you know, a voice remote or you're going to, you're going to have security cameras actually looking over people's houses and children, you really better nail all your fundamentals so that this system acts the way you think it's going to act and performs well when we're when we're customer facing it seems like there's way more pressure if we're building something that's not an internal tool but is a core outward facing product right you can lose trust very quickly right? yep. and so that's, you have to get these things right that's what your customers expect and should expect I want to move on to our last question, but before I do, I feel as though part of this, what you're articulating, is essentially helping business leaders understand that this stuff isn't easy and may in fact you know, take quite a while and may involve a lot of different iterating. Because one of the big things that we hear here is that in sort of the enterprise, business leaders sometimes will think that AI is basically an extension of IT. It's stuff that you can kind of plug in. So we plug in right. a recommendation engine, we plug in, you know, a computer vision model, whatever the case is. And of course, that's not how this works. It's vastly more complicated. There's some pre-trained stuff that's pretty simple, but if we're going to be building out something robust and bespoke for our business, particularly if it's core to our product, we're looking at a complicated process. Is part of this hierarchy of needs explanation really about getting enterprise leaders, business leaders to understand this might take a long time and I don't know when it's going to necessarily work and you should be able to expect that. Is, is part of it getting them on that page? Because I know that's a very hard page for business leaders sometimes to get on. Right, and you articulated that very well, right? And it's, it's usually... Like the way we approach problems nowadays, right? Like the best way is probably to do it in an agile manner where and that kind of goes to your next question of how to determine a first AI project, right? You basically have to show something that is well-contained where you don't have to build all the infrastructure up front, mm -hmm. right? You can show value. That means there's trust that there is something there, which then kind of you use that trust to have the business invest more money and resources and give you some more time to kind of build the foundation for the next thing, which in turn then you show that there's more value with this additional platform, which again builds more trust and it kind of goes back and forth, right? So you don't yeah. want to go out and build it all and they will come kind of thing, right? I mean, one thing that we definitely learned is that centralized efforts usually 
like where you kind of design things and the needs up front doesn't work very well. So like our approach is let's like our team is also the team that actually owns most of the AI driven products so that we can harden and really understand what is necessary to make a project successful. And then we can abstract those principles and make them uh, accessible and available to others. So like one thing that has been very well received, for example, is that we're working very closely with our learning and development arm called Comcast University, where my team is designing machine learning courses, mostly kind of building on top of the great uh, resources that are available kind of outside, like on the web, but then combine that with like specific capstone projects that use kind of our best practice framework. And so now if you are somebody who wants to learn about machine learning, we set you up kind of with the toolkit of this is the way of how you can do machine learning right. And it increases your chances of success a lot, right? And so if you now take that back into your organization and say, hey, this works really well, so now I want to apply it to my own problems or like some new problems, I have a lot of that framework that we hardened in our own daily use ready for them to build on. Got it. And and so, yeah, I, I imagine most businesses will want to develop some kind of internal education arm because you, you don't necessarily want consultants and vendors doing all of the educating because their their incentives are not necessarily aligned with that of the enterprise in and of itself. But much of what you were saying is actually quite similar to what the vendor companies who sell into the banks uh, or sell into the pharma companies or into the media firms um, have to do, which is you kind of set something up in a sandbox that doesn't involve rebuilding your whole data infrastructure. You prove that if you did have the right data, you know, with this kind of a model, you actually can deliver value. And then maybe you start to get permission to really start to overhaul and modernize the infrastructure and take the time to do that or hire the people to do that. Sounds like you probably have to do the same kinds of things in-house. Right. We are basically, in a way, you can make a dual mandate of A, owning and operating, like the core ML product. Right, which were kind of the first that Comcast was and is doing. And then at the same time, consulting the rest of the business of how to take advantage of this and get value out of it. Got it. That might wrap us up towards our final question here, uh, which, again, you had mentioned you know, Comcast has been doing this for quite some time. Obviously, they have the central hub that you're heading here. Um, and you're working on a number of projects. There's a lot of enterprises that are a little bit earlier along. You know, they don't have illustrious PhDs or a whole floor of them to, to work on interesting problems. They're, they're kind of getting off the ground with some initial experts and initial leadership. And one of the first questions is, how do I pick where to apply AI first? There's some different philosophies here. We have the philosophy that we should work at our core business differentiators, you know, the things that we really think are going to strategically matter the most. And then there's also the philosophy that maybe we need to treat data science as a skill set that we want to get better at. You know, we need to learn to ride the bike and maybe we need to pick things that are a little bit less big and scary and more familiarize ourselves with the science. If you were, you know, in a new enterprise somewhere, an enterprise you don't work at now, and they were making, going through the, the decision of where should we breathe life into AI in this company first, how would you go about thinking about that? So like looking at what's out there, right? I mean, the machine learning algorithms to a large degree are now getting commoditized in the framework, right? Via TensorFlow, PyTorch, right? Or some of the vendors out there. Then compute is pretty much commoditized. 
the thing that is still very much unique and differentiated usually in your art is the data. And it's not just the input data, but also the labeling. And I think the most critical piece to increase your chance for success of your first AI project is to pick a project where like, you have a pretty good understanding of the data, of the input data. You know that there is a close relationship between the input data and the desired label. And you have a reasonable idea that there is a way to kind of map between the two. So what I mean by that is if your labels depend on many other factors that are not captured in your input data, then it's not likely that you will be able to accurately build a model that can predict the outcome from the income because you're not capturing many of the variables that also influence that outcome. And so in that sense, that's something where it should guide your decision on where to start first. And I would probably start smaller than bigger, right? Because if you make a big bet on something, but you haven't really built up the skill set, there's just so many ways it can go wrong. And you might not understand exactly which part of it is not working out, which will make it harder then for you to continue and iterate and improve. Right? That's something which is much easier on a smaller problem where you can then have a much faster feedback cycle based on what works and what doesn't work and where you need to make changes. Okay, so so you would say getting off the ground with a project that can kind of you know, build our initial set of skills, that would be advisable in many respects. It, it, it would be advisable for us to, you know, find something relatively small that we can master and get used to these, these new tools. Right. And something where you understand well what it means to be successful or not and what it means for the model to provide the correct answers or not. Yep. Which, which again, goes to label accuracy as a critical piece for your project. And just to maybe put a little bit of color on what you've mentioned here, so I think you're putting a particular emphasis and completely makes sense on, you know, the data, finding somewhere where we can kind of trust the data, we understand the data, the data is representative of the factors, the features that really influence the outcome, they are in the data. It's not not a mystery, you know, they're, they're in there somewhere. You have a good example, even a simple one, of what may or may not fit that mold. I think people are going to want to think through this decision-making process you've just articulated. And if you could come up with one that would be a yes, one that would be a no, I think that'd be pretty helpful for folks tuned in. Sure. I mean, so like, I think one of the best examples is how we approach the voice remote. So the first problem that we were solving is one of the most frequent things you want to do with your voice remote traditionally is changing channels, right? Yep. Which means that you have to remember channel numbers, which is painful, especially if you have like 800 channels. And so going to just like teaching our, the voice remote, the natural language model to understand the channel names was kind of the first, how we started with that project because we knew the universe of what people would like to say, right? ABC, NBC, Fox, etc. And we would also very well know if we give them the right answer because if they afterwards, like we tuned automatically to a channel and they would change it right after to something else or started tuning up and down, then we probably got it wrong, right? If they started watching, then we got it right. And so that gave us a feedback loop for this relatively simple problem 
given that we were able to use to the speech to text. Nowadays, we are basically allowing you to shows or news about any topic you want, right? And so now we have to have much more, we are pretty much want to understand, our goal is to understand whatever you say and whatever you're looking for and show you the corresponding results, right? But we only can get there like based on all the learnings we had before where we really focused on something where we understood, where we could create a lot of data even with like manual annotation, um, where it was very easy to kind of identify if we got it right or wrong, right? So that we could then build a model that was providing value to the customer because they didn't have to remember channel numbers anymore, where we felt confident that we could get high accuracy because it's a relatively close domain. And then that's the building block that then basically gave also the business the trust say, hey, we should do more like this, more of this, and allowed us to build out the capabilities into everything that we can do now. Got it. And so maybe thinking through what would be that beachhead sort of use case within the business might be helpful for other business leaders who are thinking through the same thing. I'll kind of chip in there and Jan, tell me uh, this is a kind of a closing note. Uh, but if you if you disagree or something to add to it, please let me know. I think that in this phase where we're sort of you know, selecting projects, figuring out what's reasonable, what's valuable, what's also something that's of the right size so we can we can bite it off and chew it. It's not going to be too much for us. That very much feels to me like a kind of process where you would want to have both the subject matter experts, business leaders, and data science folks in the room because someone like you would know, is this a project where the data, you know, is representative of maybe the outcome versus a business leader who may not be able to sort of have the same instinct around the data feasibility. It seems like you're going to need to have both sides in the room for this brainstorm. Do you have anything else to add to that or any disagreements there? No, absolutely. You, you nailed it. And that's also how we are approaching it. Right? You want to get everybody in the room, contribute to the success, and then take it away. Got it. Excellent. Well, Jan, uh, that was the final question that we had here in the series. So we'll be wrapping up, but I sincerely appreciate you being able to share some of your insights here on the AI adoption series on AI and industry. So yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. So that's all for this episode. Before I get into our related blog post, our related article for this episode, I do want to remind everybody of our report called Getting Started with AI, Proven Best Practices for AI Adoption. Obviously, a huge bulk of our work here at Emerge is AI research. We work with organizations like large retail banks. We work with the World Bank. We work with big pharma companies about sort of beginning AI initiatives, making AI investments, developing AI strategy. Uh, that's sort of what we do here. And this new report that we've come out with on AI adoption, you can find at emerj.com slash a, that's A as in adoption. So emerge.com slash A, that's where you can learn more about our best practice guide for AI adoption. So if you're interested in sort of distilling a lot of what you're learning in these podcast episodes into simple frameworks, simple checkboxes, simple series of questions to be able to prepare for picking a project, to be able to prepare your data assets, to be able to prepare your executive teams to be ready to select a project and sort of uh, wield the right kind of influence to get that budget unlocked so we can really actually move forward with AI, be sure to check that out. That's emerj.com slash A. That's our report on AI adoption. It's a new report. It's related to this series. I want to make sure you know about it. 
the related resource, if you find the show notes for this episode, you can go to SoundCloud, you can go to Stitcher, anywhere where this episode is hosted, you will see the show notes. In the show notes, you'll see an article called Avoiding Novelty When Adopting AI. This is a article that we wrote recently, and this is about kind of cutting through the hype and being able to pick um, AI initiatives based on priorities. Jan was kind enough to be able to help us think through sort of his ideas about how to pick a project, very practical, very pragmatic, um, and being able to avoid kind of the hype and the whiz-bang of AI is a critical part of taking those uh, action steps to heart. So do check out that article in the show notes. Uh, Again, many of our listeners use the audios here as a jump-off point to explore the rest of emerj.com, the rest of our content, and Emerge. Uh, This is going to be an article that I think is uh, tightly related to what we covered here, and I want to make sure that you can explore that if this is a topic of interest. In our next episode here on the AI and Industry podcast, in our fourth installment on AI adoption, we speak with another Jan. Yes, I know that's very odd. We've never had the same first name ever twice in a row. We've been running the show for over five years now. Uh, But it's a second Jan. Jan Kutz is a vice president of learning and perception research at NVIDIA, NVIDIA, Uh, arguably the best known hardware company in artificial intelligence right now. Known for their GPUs, known for being parts of some of the most exciting AI projects in automotive and in a number of other sectors. Jan speaks with us about misconceptions about adopting AI. If you don't want to go in blind, if you don't want to go in with the same set of wrong ideas that many enterprise leaders do, that many organizational leaders do, then be sure to tune in to next week's episode on misconceptions about AI adoption, which will be our fourth installment in this series. So that's it. I will catch you next Tuesday here on AI and Industry. 